just want to thank, uh, you know, Des and Vinny. I don't know if we say this enough, but the, the commute you make, you know, working, family, all that. Um, it's a long day, and it's it's and then it's made longer by the the to and from commutes between your classes. Essentially, your breaks are are kind of eaten up by that. So we we always appreciate you guys coming and um, making this happen, musically speaking. Because if if without, if not for you guys, you know it's karaoke or it's me, and we don't want me to be the leading the singing up here. So praise the Lord. Welcome those of you listening online. Welcome, Chicago cohort. We're continuing our worldview series. We're looking at the fall of man and the problem of evil. Now, I know a lot of theologians don't like the fall, but I love the fall. You get leaves, and everyone's taking their pumpkin patch pictures this time of year. It's a great, great time of the year I like. But we'll talk about the other fall with our pastor and visionary leader, Joe Rostek. That was awesome. Great job. Great job, everyone. You guys are the best. Open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. Leave it to Pastor Jared to always have the good puns and uh, all those good uh, dad jokes. So yesterday we talked about the fall and the problem of evil. I zipped through my notes as fast as I could for the service to actually make sense. I really felt the Spirit leading me to preach. I felt a strong anointing at the end of the second service to really start speaking into people's lives. The first service was powerful as well. The application of the message is us to go out there and bring the kingdom of God. The reason why there's evil is because we have chosen sin. It's cursed the natural world, and it's cursed people. And so the reason why the natural world has natural disasters because it's a fallen world. Mankind was given dominion over it. When we sinned, it became cursed. And the reason why there is mankind or evil among men doing evil to each other is because man chose sin, and now they can still choose evil over good. And that's why it is the way it is. So from the sick child to the... The rape, the Holocaust, it's all explained in Genesis chapter 3. So we should really not see the problem of evil as a problem of Christians because in the same place, and let's go there, Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall. Uh, we also see the promise of the serpent crusher. So let's go to the part where he talks to the serpent. So the Lord God said, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. So we don't believe that the snake talked naturally. We don't believe there was talking animals in the garden. There's only two occasions where uh, animals have talked. One is with the serpent. Another one is with a donkey. And with the donkey, we believe there was an angel speaking through the donkey or God's voice coming through the donkey as well. That's where I personally believe. So I don't believe that even though the donkey uses the words like I, I just believe it's prophetic through the angel speaking so there's not a, a mythological twist to the Bible where animals speak and we all hang out with them, okay? This is not Mr. Ed or whatever. Uh, there are two occasions where it happens, and it's because it's a miracle. And with the snake, the miracle of the talking snake is Satan possesses the snake. He possesses the snake, and that's why he begins to address him in just a moment. Now, the snake will be cursed. Now, before we feel sorry for the snake, he didn't have any choice with this. Animals don't have the conscious soul anyway, so just get over it. Let's not feel like it's too bad for them. So God will symbolically now use the serpent through the rest of all eternity as a symbol of the curse. Starting here, the snake is cursed. I don't believe the snake went from walking to on the belly. It's just saying you're on your belly and you're going to stay on your belly. And that's shown in Isaiah 65, 25, that when all the animals get back to the garden state with uh, the, the lion and the lamb and the lion eats um, each straw, etc. The snake is still on his belly. But listen, this curse is now used as an example of Jesus. We then see that with Moses holding up the serpent, and those who look to him are those who look to the serpent are healed. That's then reiterated by Jesus in John 3:14, the scripture that precedes John 3:16. And then we know that Jesus takes that on for us. And then the serpent, the one the devil in Revelation is said to be thrown into the lake of fire, and then when the new heaven and earth comes, as we saw, like I just mentioned, Isaiah 65, 25, the actual serpent still stays on the ground, 
and the eats dust to remind us of what's going on here. So that's just his, he's a symbol now of the curse and what God did. So cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Boom, that's just the way it is. Verse 15, and I will put enmity, war between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That's where we get the understanding. This is parabolic symbolic language now. We know he's not just talking to an actual serpent because we don't see serpents walking around talking, having kids, and us having wars with them. So that's we get permission to add in here a prophetic understanding of the symbolism. And so we now know that there is going to be a serpent crusher. This is the first prophecy of the Messiah. Now, did the Jews understand it all at that time? Now, we have to understand, where is this time? This is the time of the wilderness journey with the Israelites after coming out of Egypt. That's when Moses is on the mountain getting these historical records perfected by God to write down, okay? So at that time, did they understand it all? No. And sometimes people will come to us and say, where's the devil in the Old Testament? Other than a few prophecies, he's not really, oh, he's not really there. There is evil. There are evil spirits. We know uh, Saul gets possessed with an evil spirit. But the Bible in the Old Testament is not really centered around uh, the devil. It's not really centered around that. And that should not concern us. It's also not centered around heaven. Heaven is not mentioned a lot there. And so sometimes people just try to downplay those things. We have to understand there was a purpose for the Old Testament. Testament. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews, in Galatians, and other places, what was the purpose of the old covenant. It was for one purpose, one purpose only, for the Messiah to come. It had a, that's the main purpose. It had a lot of secondary purposes to teach us the character of God and the holiness code, to show us the things of heaven coming to earth with the temple and all of those other things, the, 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 the pattern that he saw in heaven Moses makes on earth. So heaven kind of looks like the temple. That's what it looks like, and we see that picture in Revelation. But those were all secondary purposes. The primary purpose is right here. The reason why we don't go from Genesis chapter 3 to John chapter 3 with Jesus coming is because God in his sovereignty wanted 4,000 years of human history to prepare us for the Messiah. In the fullness of times, let's just go there. In the fullness of times, Hebrews chapter 1, we're told why he came when he came. Okay, Hebrews chapter 1, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And then the scripture, the fullness of time, where is that found at, Jared? Thank you, Galatians 4.3, God chose to do it that way. So, that, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery until, uh, that's 4.3, but the law... Okay, but when the set time had fully come, and let's see that in the more old school King James. Uh, let's go to King James, Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, uh, verse 4 rather. It says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem those under the law. So, the reason, the simple reason is God, the reason why he didn't go from Genesis to John is because God wanted there to be a fullness of time for us to know his law, for us to know his prophecies, and, and I believe this is so, that when Jesus would come, we would know what he was fulfilling. What all happened there in the garden? Well, God's giving them 613 reasons why the garden was wrong, called the law. God is showing them how they lost heaven by giving them the temple. God is showing them the need of sacrifice by giving them all those sacrificial codes and feast days and all the things that they should look forward to when the kingdom of God is restored. So God chose in his sovereignty for there to be that time lapse. So let us not be discouraged when we think of the Bible, uh, you know, having a serpent crusher that's prophesied that we have to wait for. They had to, you know, in our second coming, waiting for him to come back the second time, they had to wait for him 4,000 years to come the first time. So they didn't understand it all. And that's why the book of Ephesians and Paul and other places always talks about the mystery, the mystery. What was the mystery? It was that through Jesus, Jew and Gentile was going to come to Christ through the, the prophecies being fulfilled of the serpent crusher. Now, right here, a lot of people 
uh, like the Jews who rejected Jesus, do so based on the, the high mythological, uh, Masonic prophecies of Jesus ruling and reigning. And they say he didn't rule and reign the first time. But we believe there's a second coming where he rules and reigns. He first comes, Isaiah 53, as a suffering servant, and then he'll come and do the other things like Isaiah 65 and bring peace to the earth and so forth. But they can't hold that against us as Christians to see two parts of his coming because right here it says, he cru- you crush his head, that he will crush your head, but you will strike his heel. So what, whatever they are doing as Jews to try to understand these prophecies, they have to deal with a suffering Messiah. The Messiah suffers. The serpent crusher is himself crushed, as we know in Isaiah 53. He's crushed, right? And here it says he will strike his heel. So it's not like Christians are trying to make up a second coming to, to make up for the Jesus, that the Messiah that failed in his first coming. We can see from the very beginning there was going to be two aspects of his coming. There would be a crushing, and there would also be a striking. He would be crushing you, you would be striking him. And then when we get into the understanding of Jew and Gentile after the Tower of Babel and after Abraham and all of this, we begin to understand that God has to have a plan for the nations too. So go to Genesis chapter 12. It can't just be for the Jews. The Messiah just cannot be for the Jews. When you go to Genesis chapter 12 and you see the calling of Abraham, then known as Abram, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, he said to leave his country, his people, his father's household. He'll make him a great nation. He'll bless whoever blesses him and curse whoever curses him. And he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How are we going to get to all the peoples on earth? This is another thing that the Jewish people didn't understand. Okay. So now we have a basic understanding here that when man fell... The serpent is crushed, and then it's prophesied that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come and crush him, okay? And then we went through all of these other problems that came upon the earth. One of the things that I want to talk about today is what the atheist will try to do, the unbeliever will try to do to defend themselves against the accusations of them not having a foundation of morality. Now, let me just show you this first because I think it's good for all of us to be reminded of this. When we think about our Christian worldview, we're talking about it being upon the axiom and the foundation of God's Word, and then on God's Word, we have these presuppositions. Now, presuppositions are not things that we can prove. They are just things that have to be logically consistent and coherent within our worldview. One of our uh, presuppositions is that humanity has been sinful since the fall. Now, obviously, I didn't have all the room to say it all here, but that would really say humanity is sinful since the fall because man was created perfect and chose to do that. So in this statement, we understand that man wasn't created like this. He was first created perfect. That's why there was a fall. And then we understand that it wasn't God's choice to have us fall. It wasn't his decision. He enacted where he could have a decision, and he gave us consequences, and that was his choice. God gave us a choice to have choice, and that's, that's true. We can't get out of that, but God did not make the choice to have it go down this way. We did, and thankfully, thankfully we know God is redeeming it. So when we look at the atheistic worldview, they run into a problem when it comes into morality because they're the first ones to try to point their fingers at us and say they don't like the Bible because it's immoral and uh, we're homophobic and all of these things they want to enact in politics. And the problem that we see is, is that they have no foundation for recognizing what is good and what is evil. So I gave you an, an example of this contradiction with Richard Dawkins, the scientist who wrote the book, The God Delusion. He says, there is no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. And then later on, what does he say? The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. He's jealous. See, there's a moral quality Good or bad? Is it good or bad to be jealous? According to uh, Richard Dawkins, it's bad. But he just said there's no bad. There's no evil. And then he's, he's petty. Is it bad or good to be petty? It's bad to be petty. Or is it evil to be petty? He's unjust. Is it evil or good to be unjust? Evil. So he starts naming all of these things that are evil, unforgiving. That's bad. 
a control freak, that's bad, vindictive, all of these things he's wanting to say to you, like you agree these things are bad, and guess what, that's what God is. So he's assuming now a moral code that we all agree by, that it's evil to be unpleasant, that it's evil to be unforgiving, it's evil to be a control freak. So we all agree with those things, yeah, yeah, well guess what, God is all of those things, but hold on, what did he say? He said there is no evil, he said there is no good. And so now there's the contradiction of the atheist. And so, Jared, would you get me the board, please, with some markers? And so as you can see, they're trying to pick a button. Which one do they want to pick to blow up our worldview? They're trying to blow up our worldview. As the Bible says, we are in a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against these powers and principalities that are deceiving men, blinding their hearts, and that we are to take captive these strongholds, not using the weapons of the world, but ours are powerful and mighty through God to tear down these strongholds. So as we're doing that, they're trying to do that to you. And so now they're going to push a button to blow up your worldview. But here's the problem. they got to choose which button do they push. God doesn't exist because of evil. Is that the button they're going to push? But if they're going to push that button, what's the button that they leave unpushed? Evil doesn't exist. So which one is it? Does evil exist? Well, if evil exists, you can't say now, uh, or rather, if evil do, do you believe evil doesn't exist? Well, if you believe evil doesn't exist, you can't get mad at God because of evil. And so the idea is here is a big so what? So what our God is all of those things in your opinion? So what? What difference does it make? You have no way of showing us what is bad or good. Has this gotten lower, or is this just the way it is? Oh, it can be raised. Can you do this for me, brother, and raise this board up, please, por favor? But what did King David say, the, the, the psalmist in Psalms 14, 1 and onward? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are evil. So do we have an explanation for why there's evil in the world? Absolutely. The explanation is, is because man has sinned, and now we are here in this fallen state. We can recognize the problem of evil, but we have the problem solver, Jesus. Thank you, my brother. There you go. So what I want to do now is give you their best arguments against this, okay? So that's moral relativism. Do you see that there? I know he's blocking it, but it says moral, to, moral relativism. Can you move just a little bit more to this way so they can look at the board? Does everybody see where it says moral relativism? If you can't, you guys move this where you need it to be. I need you to move it so you can have both me and the screen. Is that good there? Okay, you just take care of it for me. I'll trust you. But guess what? Now atheists, unbelievers, want to come up with another solution, not just moral relativism. So I have to have you ready to have, answer their objections to what is moral realism, moral realism. So you still want it there? It is good there. Okay, good. So now remember, if you are a moral relativist, this is what we're talking about the problem is. So we're going to put M and then uh, rel, relative, relative. Spelling is never my thing. Okay. So now remember, if you're a moral relativist, you run into contradictions, and I'll show you how it starts off. They say right here, I believe in evil. Okay? I believe in evil. And because I believe in evil, I see the Holocaust, and I know the Holocaust is evil. Now that I see that the Holocaust is evil, I don't believe that there's a God anymore because God wouldn't allow evil. Therefore... I now come back to this answer, which is what? I still believe in evil? That doesn't make any sense. Because if you just used evil to disbelieve God, what's the missing step right here? What's the missing step? That if there's no God, there's no evil. Do you see how that works? So they skip a step, and they say, man, I believe in evil. The Holocaust was evil. Man, therefore, if all this evil is going on, there can't be a God, and I still believe in evil, and all these things, you see how they do that? But what's the logical format here? The logical format is, if there's no God, then where is your definition of evil? And that's why moral relativism fails. That's why they cannot answer this problem. So what they're doing is they're cutting off the branch they're sitting on. They're sitting on the branch of morality being objective, not being subjective, just a matter of opinion. And as they're sawing it off in complaint of God, they no more have a branch to sit on. 
as another one said, they're sitting on the lap of God and his morality. They could not get to have this interaction with God unless they had morality, but now they sit on God's lap and then they spit in his face and they say, he's immoral. But remember, without God, you don't have a real definition of morality. Now, let me just stop right here before I get into the other one, which is where people are going now because they've gotten beat over the head so many times with this that now they're becoming moral realists. And moral realists do believe in objective morality. And so we'll have to talk about that. They are a growing number of unbelievers that are starting to use these arguments. They're equally as contradicting, but they are not as popular as the more recent atheists have been. The newer ones, uh, you know, the more, more of the past, I should say here, and the more newer ones are getting more slick because they've watched this get blowed up time and time again. What I'm bringing to you is the best of apologetics right now on the front lines, our guys doing debates and all of that. And so this has gotten blown up so much that now they're writing new books, and I'm going to show you one of those books in just a second. But before I do, I want to talk to you about the the Euthyphro dilemma, which is basically, does God just arbitrarily decide what is good, or does God do good... um, because good is the standard he must be by. So let me, uh, he must do good things by. So let me give you the Euthyphro dilemma that has been brought up in philosophy. It predates even Christianity. And so you guys can be able to see it here. Okay, let's see. I wanted it. I have it in my notes. Do I have it there? Give me just a second. Okay, here it is. It was there. Is the pious loved by the gods? This is what Socrates asked Euthyphro. This is in Plato's Dialogues. Is the pious loved by the gods because it is pious, or it is, or is it pious because it is loved by the gods? Okay, I'm going to read it again. Sounds a little confusing, but you have to get it. Because if you're not ready for it, you'll be rocked by this. Is the good loved by the gods because it is good? Okay. Or is it good because it is loved by the gods? Now, another way of looking at it is very simple. It's like this. Does God do what is good for goodness sake, or does God arbitrarily, on his own, decide whatever is good, and therefore it's good? Now, where's the problem with that? If God is doing good for goodness sakes, goodness sake, then that means God and goodness both exist at the same time, and they're not each other. So God is doing something because there's another standard beside him in the universe currently right now that he himself must obey if he wants to be good. If God wants to be good, he has to obey this standard called goodness. But then you say, no, 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 that's not true. God dwells all by himself. There's not something called good floating off over here. But then they say to you, now then, whatever God does is good then? So God could rape and pillage and do whatever? Is that now just good? Just some arbitrary thing that the God makes up as he goes along? Because that's not really good. What is the answer to Youth the Fro's dilemma? What is the answer to it? Jared, can you get me some water, please? Okay, it's neither. Very good. It's a false dilemma. These are called false dilemmas where they try to say it's either or, and both answers are wrong. So um, did you beat your wife last night or smoke crack? Neither, right? Did you beat your wife last night or did you smoke crack? You did neither, okay? Does good exist outside of God or does God arbitrarily make whatever he wants good? Neither. So Euthyphro's dilemma is a false dilemma. Good, so now you've gone that first uh, You've gone that first step. It's a trap. But now what is the actual answer then? So then they say, well, then what is good? How does good exist? What do you say? There you go. 
The answer is God is good. So it's not that God is arbitrarily calling things good. God is limited to what good is by his own nature. So it's not that he can change his nature. So it's not that God can lie and then now call that good. Because God himself is good. And that goes back down to our presuppositional position. All things must have a good foundation. All things must be rooted in something. And so we're saying goodness is rooted in God himself. That's the only way we can recognize goodness. So this is partly true, but it's not arbitrarily true. God does not change his standard of goodness. God cannot lie. God will never know what it's like to do evil. God will never know what it's like to sin. God will not do those things and then try to change what the standard is as we know good and then call it good because he does it. It's contrary to his nature. That is what evil is by definition. Evil is not just a command. Though we believe that these good works or good things, the moral knowledge of good, is expressed by his command, so we believe in what's called the divine command theory. Of goodness, that's what we believe. That the divine uh, good, the goodness of this world is known to man by God's divine commands. That goes back to our 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 axiom being the word of God, and so we know what is good by His commands. There it is. That's how we look at it. But at the same time, we don't believe God arbitrarily makes commands. They come according to His nature. Now, what somebody may try to do is try to find inconsistencies within our worldview in that way. Now, there's two ways that you can respond when someone now wants to come towards your worldview and start criticizing the Bible and call God contradictory or evil, etc. The only way I will let someone do that is if they give me first a foundation, drawing a triangle here, of logic and morality. If they don't give me a foundation of logic and morality, then I will not let them come into my Bible and try to find inconsistencies. Because inconsistencies only exist if logic exists, and God is only evil if evil exists. So who are the only ones that we should have arguments about whether or not our God is consistent with his character and is the Bible with logical within itself? Other theists, exactly. Other theists, we now go God to God, book to book, prophet to prophet, Messiah to, you know, our God versus their God, whatever. So that's the only place now we go, okay, you want to do that, let's go. And as you're giving me your claims of inconsistencies my, my way, I will defend and then I will expose your book and show that the inconsistencies really lie there. So the Muslim will try to say something like, well, you say that your God is against rape, but the Old Testament has accounts where the people went and raped and took these women as their wives, okay? So now what we'll give them is the answer to that. We did not come and rape them. We killed them, and if their wives were still alive, we were allowed to marry them, but it was never a forced marriage. That was up to them. And then when we did marry them, they got to choose if they wanted. They had to convert to, uh, to Judaism for us to marry them and so forth and so on. So that's our explanation. It's not rape by that definition. Now then what do we say? But your book actually teaches rape that when you plunder... The people, you can take whatever your right hand possesses, even to married women where their husbands are still alive. So you see how we just showed that back to them. And then we'll hit them back again. Remember, you're attacking our Torah, our books of the Bible, because a lot of these happened during that time, and some with Joshua and Judges as well. You're attacking us, and your book confirms our book, so then you bring them to the Quranic dilemma. Do you see that? We have defended and we are destroying. We are defending, as, as uh, Peter says, we are defending the truth, and then we are destroying, as Paul said in Corinthians. Let's just look at that passage, uh, those two passages again. Everybody say, defend and destroy. 
Amen. We defend and destroy according to 1 Peter 3.15, but in your heart to revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia, a defense to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's us defending ourselves. That's in 1 Peter 3.15 and onward. And then in 2 Corinthians 10.3 and onward, um, especially in verse 5, it says, we demolish arguments or destroy them and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And before that says, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. So we defend and destroy. So will I give the moral realist an opportunity to start trying to find contradictions in my worldview? Absolutely not. You got to get off your first, you got to get off your foundation first. And they can't do it. They can't give us certainty. For them, there is no such thing as objective things. That's why it's all relative. And they cannot give us certainty. Everything is all probability. So that's where we rock them there. Now, when we get to the moral realist, the moral realist is going to try to make a move around this. Most moral realists used to be moral relativists. And you can see that in their works. Now, what is moral realism? Moral realism or moral objectivism is what we are. So we are that as well, okay? But they will be this too, but they will appeal to a different foundation. Moral realism or moral objectivism is the meta-ethical view that there exist such things as moral facts and moral values and that these are independent uh, that these are objective and independent of our perception of them or our beliefs, feelings, or other attitudes towards them. That's exactly what we believe. We believe that moral morality actually exists, and it's not physical. It's metaphysical, as you see there, and that's why it's meta-ethical, but it's implied that it's metaphysical, well, not all the times it's metaphysical, but some, many of the times it's metaphysical. And then we believe that it's not dependent upon us or our beliefs because our beliefs and us can be wrong about them. Okay, so moral realism comes in basically three different categories. Non-natural realism is what we are. So I should say not everybody believes they're metaphysical, or beyond the physical, Okay. What non-natural realism is, moral facts are abstract, non-physical states of affairs like mathematical facts. That's what we believe. We believe they're non-natural, but they're real. Okay? The laws of mathematics are not in the natural world, but they're real. We use them, we think about them, we discover them, but we don't make them. We don't make them. We discover them, okay? You get it? Think about a natural law. We don't make gravity, but we discover in mathematics how gravity works. We don't make murdering children wrong, but we discover it as we live, okay? So that's what we are, non-natural realism. Then there's type-type natural realism, which you can just basically say it like this. Natural realism Moral facts are equivalent to or supervenient upon natural facts. Now, the other one here I get a little confused with, I'll be honest with you, trivial token nat natural realism. And by the way, they make up terms all day long in these philosophical places. Moral terms are correctly applied to natural facts, but morality is not necessarily constituted by natural facts. So that seems like they're trying to somehow be between naturalism, uh, non-natural realism, and natural realism. So right now, let's just keep that aside for a minute. This would be natural realism, okay? That would just be the kind of idea of that the law of gravity is true whether I discover it or not, but it's still a law that's only within nature, so it's still natural, but it's true and it's objective. So it's not like you can come and erase the law of gravity because it's not real, because what they're trying to say is things that are not natural are still real, and you can't monkey with them, and, and you discover them. That's kind of what they're trying to say. So it's, it's like I, I, I do this equation. Let me just do a simple equation. I do 2 plus 2 equals 4. Okay, I do 2 plus 2 equals 4. This is true. This is absolutely true. 
I can erase it in the natural world and put five here, right? Like I can go five. But that didn't change. That doesn't change. That doesn't make it true because though I'm discovering it in nature, there's no way I can change it in nature. It just is what it is, okay? But it's still in nature. It's in nature. They will say, that, that's true, but that we don't need a God for that. We don't need a mind uh, outside of our minds for that. We're discovering it. And, and the example I was trying to give with gravity, I think, is a little bit better if I can take my time to explain it. Gravity is working in the natural world. We can erase equations and make it look stupid here, like whatever we call gravity, but that never changes it here. But when we have it right here, it cor- here's the word I'm looking for, it corresponds to what the natural world is. Does everybody get that? And so we call that a correspondence theory of truth. And that's pretty much what what both of these people are going to have when it comes to epistemology, is that whatever is true corresponds to our knowledge of what is true. So it's a correspondence. Let me just put it up here, correspondence theory of truth. And we'll just keep going down a rabbit trail if we don't stop ourselves at some point. So I'm trying to explain to you naturally how they do it, but I'm going to hit on some things here. Correspondence theory of truth is basically the theory of truth. It's an epistemology. The correspondence theory of truth states that the truth or falsity of a statement is determined only by how it relates to the world and whether it accurately describes that world. Okay? So the only reason why this is true, 2 plus 2 equals 4, is because it responds to the natural world, period. Let me just say that. Does everybody get that? That's what the natural moral realist is going to say as well. Murdering children is wrong because it looks wrong in the natural world, period. Two plus two equals four because it works in the natural world, period. And they're going to say, just like I can't change, I I can change numbers here. I, I can do this because remember moral realism. Remember the belief moral realism does not change on our beliefs or our perception. So my belie- I can say I don't believe in 2 plus 2 equaling 4, but the natural realist will say it's still 4. It's still 4 in the natural world. I can say I don't believe in gravity. I can try to change the numbers, but it's still real in the world. And they'll say oh, we didn't need a God to say any of that. Okay, now let me deal with this first, and then I'll get to the unbelieving uh, um, view of non-natural realism, because they also there's atheists who believe in non-natural realism. What we say to the natural realist is the most simplest thing we said from the very beginning is, how do I know evil? So they say, well, I see it in the real world. Back it up. How do I know I see the real world? Do you see what I'm saying? How do I know I'm here? How do I know anything? And so what are they going to do now? They're now going to do this, and they are presuppositionalists too. They will say, I presuppose, this is what they will say, and you got to be ready for this. I was watching a guy debate this. He will say, as a naturalist, I presuppose, this is what he'll say, my, my axiom is this, everything in the real world is as it appears. Now, do we grant them that? Yes, because to be fair, we give them the starting point, and we want them to give us our starting point. They can start with that starting point. But now they must be coherent in their own system as they go forward. So now they use the natural world, the belief the natural world is the way it is as their starting point. We grant it to them because axioms, remember, are not proven they're your starting point because if you have something that proves your axiom, then that thing proving your axiom is your axiom. So get it. We're not using nothing. So, so you, go, you don't go prove your axiom. That's not the right language. The right language is demonstrate your axiom. Show your dem- demonstrate that your axiom is valid within the world we live in and the pre- other presuppositions that you must make to utilize your axiom. And we do that with the word of God and these presuppositions we have. So what's the very next thing we're going to say? Where did the natural world come from? Where did the certainty of your mind come from? Now if they have to say, in this world it's always existed. Now they're going to insert the universe has always existed. Now we have to ask them again, why is it designed? 
Why is it designed? So now what are they basically going to do? They're either at this point going to make a hundred presuppositions that they cannot prove, or they're now going to show the deficiencies in their axiom, which cannot bring explanatory scope. Explanatory scope is what an axiom has to do. The axiom has to give the explanatory foundation and the scope for all of these things. The natural realist cannot do that. It's an inadequate foundation. And all we did was ask them to explain further the natural world. And so now, if everything becomes a presupposition to them, uh, the universe is just the way it is, everything appears just as it is, I know I exist just as I exist, and that's the whole thing, well then now, you're just playing make-believe. You, I could just do the same thing in return. God is the way he is. The Bible is the way it is. I know it's true the way it is. And then now it, it, we've, gotten nowhere. we've gotten nowhere. You have demonstrated nothing. You've demonstrated nothing. You've just asserted every single thing you believe. And don't get me wrong. At times they think the presuppositionalist is doing that, and we're not. The presuppositionalist starts with a point, an axiom, and then shows how the rest of it builds in there. We don't just keep asserting every single thing as a presupposition. We have our foundational beliefs as presuppositions, and that's okay. But once again, we're not asking them to take it based on our our hearsay or whatever. We're asking them to work it through to see if it's logically consistent. Is it convincing to them? And to me, it is convincing when you look at the Bible that there's more than one person as God, sharing the being of God, one God and three persons. It's convincing that the fall happened through this way, right? Now, if they say, well, I don't accept any of that, that's fine. But you are bankrupt now on your foundation. And then we trust the Holy Spirit to expose them because it's, like I said, it's a fool arguing there, right? It's a foolish argument. So we simply ask them to keep backing the thing up, to come to a foundation, and to now explain the reason for everything else. So as I've said before, if, if your worldview cannot explain how you got here, your worldview is not adequate to explain now that what to do now that you're here. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you. So now let's go here to the non-natural uh, uh, type of moral realism. And what is that going to be, uh, Jared? Non-natural moral realism. What are they going to uh, uh, appeal to? Yes, the world of forms and Platonism. You say, man, I can't believe they'll do that. That's exactly what they'll do. They will appeal to the world of forms. And that's, that's what they'll sound like. Now, um, and sometimes what they'll say is we don't know which one is, is better, uh, whether the world of forms exists or not. And, and I thought I had it up here. Let me get moral Platonism. Moral Platonism. And you'll see William Lane Craig uh, answering this objection and other people. And, uh, but here you have Oxford Scholarship. Pretty smart guys, right? How many know you got to be smart to go to Oxford? Okay? But they'll try to defend it right here. How to be a moral Platonist. Let's take a look at this. I've never seen this article. No, no better time than do it in front of class while I'm being recorded, right? No better time. See, I could be quick on my feet. Uh, Brian was telling me the other day he likes the interviews I do on the street because I'm quick. And then when we do the truck, you got to be quick with people because all kinds of weird things happen. Right, Jackie, when you're out there? It was funny watching Jackie kind of talk to a heckler, you know. She was being so nice to him, you know. And, and sometimes you just got to ignore him and go on. But uh, she was being very nice. Okay, here's a journal. It looks like it's in a journal here, Oxford Studies and Metaethics. Contrary to popular opinion, non-natural realism can explain both why normative properties supervene on the descriptive properties and why this pattern is analytic. And if you don't understand that sentence, don't feel alone. It took me a long time to start understanding sentences like that. The explanation proceeds by positing a subtle, and I don't know this word, word polysemi, the explanation proceeds by positing a subtle polysemi normative pr predicates like good. Such predicates express slightly different senses when they are applied to particulars and to kinds. The former sense good can be defined in terms of the latter good as follows. X is good if there is a kind K such that is X is a token of K and K is good. Now we're all confused, right? 
So you take your time, you take, and see, they love to, you know, as we're laughing at them, they laugh at us that we don't understand it, right? Because that's really smart to them. So the idea is, and we have Christians who do the work as well. If you get uh, J.P. Moreland's book with uh, William Lane Craig, Philosophical Foundations to a Christian Worldview, you'll learn all those terms as well. It's not a big deal. Basically what they're saying is they're going to start putting in properties to these, to these things that they believe, and they're going to do it through Platonism. They're going to start uh, giving properties of good to the world in a non-natural sense, that's not God. That's all they're going to do, and they're going to play make-believe for a while. Okay, now, what do we say to that kind of person? Now, I don't know for sure, and I wish I could know better on this, if, um, if Shermer, Michael Shermer, is a moral uh, Platonist, I don't know, but he wrote the book called The Moral Arc, now science and reason lead humanity towards truth, justice, and freedom. And basically the whole idea behind that book is based on um, what Martin Luther King Jr. said. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And so people have tried to make this arc in a way like you could look through the moral thinkers of our time. I, I have it up here, I believe. Yeah, and um, I don't know exactly where it's supposed to start. I don't know if it's supposed to start here with Francis Assisi and then goes all the way down. And it looks like they're quoting, I mean, it looks like they're putting up here a lot of, like, Christian and Hindu thinkers and, and uh, abolitionists, you know, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and Martin Luther King Jr., and, and Gandhi and all of this. And then it goes down to here. So, but I, I thought the arc was supposed to go up. So maybe I'm not understanding this. What's going on? Is that the one from Afghanistan, the girl? From Pakistan, thank you. Okay, so it's going like that. So um, I guess I would have to understand why the arc starts up and then goes around and over like that. I don't know. When I think of an arc, I think of it going straight up. But when I look at the cover of his book, it looks like that's kind of the same thing he's doing here. Um, who knows? At this point, it really doesn't matter that much. But the bottom line is, is there a moral arc of the universe? Where is it? Is it in Platonism? Is it just something that's out there? Why is it out there? Now let's say, let's just sake for the argument right now that it is out there and there is Platonism. Now let me ask you a question. If that's their foundation, let me ask you this. How do we go from an is to an ought? And that's the famous argument that the Christians always bring up. How do we go from there is an objective moral standard that says killing a child is wrong. That is a moral objective standard. How do we go from there to you ought to not kill somebody and obey the moral objective standard? How do we get there? How do you make that leap? You can't. Not on this worldview. Not on the, uh, let's get that one off there. Not on this, uh, the worldview of moral realism. You can't do that. You can't go from one to the other because right here, what takes it from the is to the ought? That's why we believe in divine command theory. God commands us, the one who is good, gives us the command. Can you wipe the board for me, please, quickly, sir? I know you have to get going in just a moment, but I want to show this, this bridge that they can't cross. But we cross by divine commands. Now, what they'll say is something like, well, um, I was once a Christian, and I didn't murder people. Now I'm not a Christian, and I still don't murder people. See, your, your divine command theory failed. I still don't mur murder people. You know why? Because it's true I shouldn't murder people, and I knew it as a Christian, and I knew it as a non-Christian. Being a Christian didn't change anything. The moral arc remained the same. So what do we say back to that? What would you say? Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, so when, when something happens in your life that makes you want to do something other than what you said was morally true when you were a Christian, what do you have? You have nothing to tell you not to do it. So if, some, if someone hurts your family and now you want to now hurt that person, yeah, take revenge or something like that, you have nothing to stand on not to do what is good. Exactly. So that's a good point. You have no arbiter. You have no judge or reason to to stop being moral or be, or uh, stop being moral and become immoral, and to start being moral if you've been immoral. You have no reason. Now that's what we teach them. We make sure they understand there's a difference. We are not saying as Christians that you have to believe in Christianity to recognize our morality. So your point that you just made actually proves our point perfectly, that you know from what is made that there is a God, that there is a moral truth. You suppress it when you want. You live by it when you want. And you're never good enough to make God accept you into heaven, so you're going to perish into hell. So you proved our point. God gave you morality. There you go. So if your argument was trying to disprove mine, it only proved it. So you didn't make a point. So the, no point goes on the board for them by trying to say, I was a Christian, and now I'm not a Christian. I still don't murder. That fits in perfectly with our story, okay? So what we'll show them now is, just like what you said in the demonstration, is let's pretend what you're saying is true. All these is's, all these true things exist in the world. Why should there be one ought? that we now ought to do what is true. So Hitler, let's say Hitler didn't want to do all that is true. Oh, let's just make up a new Hitler. Right now, somebody goes, yeah, I know it's wrong to eat babies. I know it's wrong to kill. I know it's wrong to do all of that. that that's just like two plus two is four. I agree with you. It's real. It exists. It's a Platonist thing. Cool. But I'm going to eat you because I like eating you. And I'm going to kill you because I like to kill you. And I want to have all the sex, money, and drugs, and power that I want. And then when I die, I die. That's it. Stop me. You see, their explanation fails now. They can say, well, science says you shouldn't eat that person because you might get a genetic disorder. So I'm going to die anyways. You get my point? See, there's nothing you're saying to the person to compel them they ought to do it. Well, science says it. Science says it. You know what? I'm gonna be, you're going to be the first one I impale out here and light up as a Roman candle. That's where the name came from, impaling Christians, pouring gas on them. I'm going to let you teach me your science on a Roman candle. Then you'll die and we'll laugh at you. That's what they did in the pagan world. So where is the ought here of all the is's the scientists found out? There is none. So they haven't crossed this bridge. What they're appealing to is something that's in our worldview, which is the divine command. You ought to do that. You ought to do it. And so when you hear the debate with Michael Shermer, he says you should be good for goodness sake. Be good for goodness sake. Why? Why? Because it feels better. Look at all the, the death that we had. If, we, if Christian worldview-minded people wouldn't have stopped the, the century of communism, this whole entire world would be a different place. And how could any moral realist have a real problem with it? They could say, ah, it makes me mad every time you put two, you, two plus two equals five. That makes me mad. I don't like it because we all know it's four. But so what? Who cares if we know it's four or five? What difference does it make? That, you see, you know, they could say, well, it's real that you shouldn't marry babies. And I don't like when you murder, uh, murder babies and do all that. Well, so what? Why, why do we care if it's right or wrong? And that's why, that's why Alex Rosenberg, who is a moral relativist, that's why he is also a social Darwinist, and that's why he's also a nihilist. He believes in social Darwinism doing its thing, and it doesn't matter whether people want to play nice and by the rules, and he understands nothing really matters anyways. That's nihilism from Nietzsche. So they look like they can kind of compete with us for a minute, but they really can't. And then once again, not only does, uh, and this would just be one argument, by the way. This would just be one argument that I showed you guys before. Um, if God exists, morality exists. Point number two, morality exists. Point number three, therefore God exists. They would then argue back. Uh, the moral relativists would argue like this. If God exists, evil will not exist. Evil does exist, therefore God does not exist. And we showed, them, showed you how to crush that. 
Both, both starting points we would debate over, that first point. We proved to them that God and evil can exist together. There's no contradiction there for our point, so we defend our premises are true, and then we show them that their premises are not true when they say that God and evil cannot exist together. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the moral realist will say, moral realism is true, and God doesn't have to ground it. Or if, if moral realism is true, it doesn't need God to ground it. Moral realism is true, therefore God doesn't have to ground it, or something simple like that. But we show them that it never gets to an ought, and then what we then can show them is that moral realism does not explain a whole lot of other things, which I didn't get a time to get into, which is why we're moral beings to begin with. Why does the force of Obi-Wan Kenobi care about anything, you know? Why does the force of Yoda care about anything? Why does that thing out there, where did that thing come from? Well, it just is. And if you ask me to explain, I'll actually explain where your God came from. Yeah, but the difference between me describing a God that has no beginning and end and he's the source of all good and all that is that God is a person. God is an intelligent mind. You're saying there is literally not a mind behind a good, but there is a good that exists that, co that corresponds to my mind. So we run into all of those issues. How many know the devil has gotten a little bit uh, wiser over the years? Or he, let's put it this way, he, his lies have gotten a little bit more advanced. But if you still take your time with him, you can expose him as a liar nonetheless. Amen? He's still a liar. After all these years, he's the father of lies. And that's why he always comes to us with lies. And sometimes, uh, most of the time, the, the lies that are the most convincing are the ones that have the most amount of truth. They have the most amount of truth, and then they deceive us if we're not careful. So what do we say in response to all of these things? We say that the problem of evil came because mankind sinned, and that God is now using our sins as a demonstration of his justice, and that those who repent of their sins can be saved, and that Jesus is the serpent crusher, that Jesus takes our pains and our problems, because remember, none of these worldviews, because let's just be honest, most of us don't even care about philosophy. We're all dealing with the emotional problem of pain. And William Lane Craig made another video about the emotional problem of pain just to help people dealing with it because it's hard even for Christians at times to deal with pain. And so what does our book give us? What does our axiom give us? The truth, obviously. And the truth is so good for our soul that Jesus in Isaiah 52 through 53, chapters 52 and 53, uh, he becomes acquainted with our pain. He takes our pain. He shares in our suffering. Look at Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. The iniquity of us all was laid upon him. He will justify the many. And it says here that he bore the sin of many and made the intercession for transgressors. Ephesians, uh, rather, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So is it good to know these things? Yes, there is a world where these things happen. And you may want to keep studying this. You may want to get your master's in philosophy or Ph.D., and uh, you'll be great at it. You know, if this is something you guys want to do, put your heart towards it. Some of the things I just want you to see before we move past this subject is think about somebody like a Desi. You know, m much of her life, uh, you know, non-academic, not really spending a lot of time in the books, doing your thing. Good singer, though, right? All of these other talents you have. And, um, you know, you learn these things now. But think about this. If the church, the Christian church, was so just stupid and, and just idiotic in our beliefs about the Bible and all these silly arguments, why would we be the ones with our own time, our own money, our own microphone, our own Bible colleges teach you about logic? You've learned logic in church. Like you will literally tell people for the rest of your life, I never knew logic until I went to church. And I never knew of that atheist. When you were the most wildest person out there, you never knew of that atheist. But Joe mentioned his name and showed you his book and quoted from him. Why do you think that is? It's because we know we have the truth. 
Think about that. I'm not just saying that to, you know, to try to say how awesome we are as Christians, but the Bible literally says the truth will set you free. I never learned logic as much as I had until I became a Christian. And when you hear people convert to Christianity it, from those backgrounds, it's never that we hid it all from them. And then, and then now they, they tell us like 10 years later, man, I found out all these crazy things about Christians. No, when you hear the testimonies like Lee Strobel or these other professors or whatever, it's always the same. The more I dug, the more I went into it, the more awesome it was. And now 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, it's the greatest thing in my whole life. Like Dr. Michael Brown goes to learn Hebrew to go against the rabbis that his parents are sending him to, and it's not like he finds out something in the Bible's not right with the Hebrew. He becomes a PhD in Hebrew, writes a five-volume book to help Jews, and says, thank you, Mom, for sending me to the rabbi to change my mind, because all it did was make me study more. It's not, see, just get this, it's not like Mormonism. You see how, like, sketchy they are and Jehovah Witnesses and all, they're like little squirrels. It's like, you know, they run away once they see you coming and one, oh, one, once they find out you don't want it, they run away. But we're the ones always running to them. Even, think about that, even those big, bad Muslims and, and those meany black Hebrew Israelites, it's always the Christians, always the pursuing them until they don't want to debate anymore, until we can't find any more Muslims to debate. And those black Hebrew Israelites, they won't debate us. Those ones who make the videos, we say, let's sit down do the thing Be together, one-on-one. -on -one. You know why they won't do it? It's because they know that it gets exposed. It gets brought into the light. And even if they don't know it like, I know I will get exposed, it's a suppression. It's something on the inside of them, the darkness that holds them back. Now get this, no, like all that great philosophical stuff, it's no different than the person you meet on the streets. Hey, man, I don't want to come to church. I want that guy. It's no different. They don't want to think it through. Sometimes we think they're scientists, they're philosophers, they're so smart. No, we figure out their worldviews. They write all of these things. We keep track with them. Our guys are always on top of them, writing rebuttal after rebuttal after rebuttal. Like I showed you with Dr. William Lame Craig, we're always coming after their new ways of doing things. And they fail to repent. Why? Because they love their sin and don't want to come into the light. But those of us who have come to the light have come because we know Jesus was there for us. It was him healing our heart that showed it to us. He proved it to us, and it does line up with all the other truths of the world. The natural world corresponds with the truth of the world. Amen? Father, we thank you today for all that you're doing in us and through us. We pray that we will know your truth as it applies to good and evil, that we'll bring the answer, your son Jesus, to the people of this world so that he can be their Lord and Savior as he is our Lord and Savior, and that the world will know you through Jesus, and that we'll all uh, be free from the curse of sin and death. In Jesus' name, amen.